come, I just want to say that I love you, and I'm so thankful that I have you as my mom, especially since I have him as my dad. And <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your patience. Thank you for the example, uh, the woman of God that you are. Thank you for your love of, that, of the Lord that you showed me. And um, I know I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you, Mom. So thank you so much. Amen. Praise God for my mom and for all of the amazing moms like her out there. So, on the night of October 8th, 1871, it was a, a beautiful night in the city of Chicago. There was a nice cool breeze coming off of Lake Michigan. And there was hope in the air that there would finally be rain after the months and months of drought that had racked the city. Unfortunately, they didn't get rain. Instead, they got a fire. The O'Leary family farm went up in flames, and what typically would have been a small barn fire that got put out quickly had many different contributing factors as to why it turned into the great Chicago fire of 1871. And now, as I said, there was a strong wind coming off of the lake, and there hadn't been rain for months, so conditions were ripe for the fire to spread. Most of the city was made out of wood. Not only were the buildings made out of wood, but so were the sidewalks and the streets. They pretty much made everything out of wood. The local precinct that was dispatched to go and fight the fire, they had just gotten back from fighting another fire, so those guys were exhausted. And the other precincts that were sent to the barn to put it out, they went to the wrong place, and they didn't show up until it had already started to spread to the other buildings around it. And so for all of those reasons, this little barn fire turned out to be a huge conflagration, and it, it burned four miles of the city to the ground. You can see on the screen behind me the kind of area that's outlined. That was all burned down. It killed hundreds of people and thousands of homes and businesses and caused over $5 billion in damages in today's money. It was, it was a really big deal. When the flames finally died down and the ash settled, one person lamented that it didn't matter if the rain came anymore. There was no hope left for the people in the city. We are all without hope. And today we're going to be talking about hope. That's our topic. And we're in the middle of a sermon series called Alien Invasion where we're learning about how we are called to be the aliens and strangers that we are, 1 Peter 2.11, as we bring the light and love of the gospel, the peace of God, into this very dark world. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20, and we're to behave like that as we live out our lives being messengers of the gospel into this world. And we've been looking at different things that set us apart from those in the world around us. And today, we're going to be studying the unshakable hope that we should have 
as children of God, the hope that should set us apart, that we would shine brightly in the darkness. So if you'd turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, we're going to be reminding ourselves of the hope-filled confidence we have in Christ and understanding the fact that our faith in Jesus means that we can have a secure identity in him. And as you turn to Romans 15, I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you so much for the hope that you give us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died for us, that we can have hope. And Lord, I pray that right now, Lord, my tongue and my lips would be wholly yielded to you, that I would decrease, that you would increase, Lord, and that you would speak through me and our hearts would be prepared to hear your truth and to be encouraged and spurred on by it. That we would all grasp more firmly onto the hope that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before, before we dive into our text, we need to understand a little bit about the letter of Romans so that we get kind of what Paul's talking about here. Um, and he, he's writing this letter to the city of Rome, a city that he hadn't visited yet. He hadn't been to Rome yet when he wrote. And yet he knew that the church in Rome was made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. So it was kind of a, a mixed congregation. And many of those believers will were either former slaves or current slaves. And so there was a lot of potential for division in the church in Rome. Therefore, Paul spends the majority of his letter really laying out the depth of the gospel. And he really hits hard the fact that the gospel is a message of salvation, transformation, invitation, and restoration. That, that we, when we put our faith in Christ, regardless of uh, who we are, can be confident in our identity, that we can have a hope. And so he explains that no matter who you are, Gentile or Jew, slave or free, rich or poor, educated or ignorant, it doesn't matter, every single person on this planet is pretty messed up. Every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. And because we're not perfect, we're unable to make ourselves right with God on our own. It can't happen. We cannot do it. No matter how much you try, no matter how good you try to be, you are going nowhere, Romans 3, 10, and 11. In fact, left to ourselves, there is absolutely no way that we can please God, Romans 8, 8. And therefore, apart from someone saving us, since we can't save ourselves, we are going to face death, eternal separation from God, Romans 6.23. Thankfully, God knows that we're helpless. He knows that we are unable to save ourselves from our messed up state, and so he sent his son, Jesus, to save us. That while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He lived a perfect life. He died a death to pay for our sins. And he overcame sin and death and rose again to life. 
Jesus Christ did everything that we never possibly could do. And if we would just put our faith in him, if we would just trust him and submit to him, that we will be saved, Romans 10, 9 and 10. All of our sins will be washed away. There will be no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. 8.1. There is nothing, nothing that can separate the child of God from the love of the Father. Romans 8.35-39. But God not only saves us, By grace, through faith, he also transforms us. He transforms our minds and he empowers us to live holy lives sacrificed to him, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And he invites us to be a part of his work that he's doing in this world, Romans 12, 6. As we look forward to the day of the return of our Savior and King. The gospel is a message of salvation, transformation, invitation, and restoration, and Romans has it all. It has it all as Paul is teaching the people about the confidence that we can have in our identity as children of God. When we submit to him, we are new creations, and we are now adopted into his family as co-heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 15. And so through Jesus, we have the power, we have the Holy Spirit so that we can overcome temptation, we can overcome the potential for division within the body, we can overcome all the attacks of the enemy and confidently stand firm in our identity as children of God. No matter whether the world is burning around us, we can have confidence in our hope in Christ. And so that brings us all the way up to our main text in Romans 15. And Paul is explaining that because of our confident, hope-filled identity in Jesus, we should have a hope-filled mindset of certainty. We should have a hope-filled mindset of certainty. And because of the Romans' shared identity in Christ, Paul is exhorting his readers to unity. That's the context of Romans 15. He's saying, look, you guys should be united. If you were here last week, you heard how the unity of Christ followers is one of the markers of what we are to be as Christians, that it should be drawing people to Jesus. Now Paul shows us that as we walk in the unity of our hope-filled identity, we should have a hope-filled mindset that is characterized by certainty in God's promises. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to be focusing on Romans 15, verse 4 and 13. Those are the two verses that we're going to look first at Romans 15, 4. And you can read it on the screen behind me. It says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That we might have hope through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures. 
Now, the first thing I want us to see is the importance of the Word of God in giving us hope. Paul says that everything that was written in the Old Testament, everything in Scripture was meant to encourage us and to spur us on to persevere because of the hope that the Word of God provides. Now, looks like we're having some trouble with the slides, but if you can go to the instruction slide, the Greek word for instruction, Mike, you with me up there? Yeah, okay. So, um, the Greek word here for instruction, it refers to, it's a lot more than just the impartation of knowledge. It's, the word instruction here isn't just about the impartation of knowledge. It refers to um, not just what we know, but how we think and how we live. It is instructing us in how to think and how to live. As followers of Jesus, we should have a mindset and a lifestyle of hope because of what all of Scripture teaches us about Jesus and the gospel and our identity in Christ and our future with Christ, that should give us hope. Because all of Scripture is either going to point us to Jesus or it's going to be about Jesus or about what he taught. And as we get to know Jesus better, As we get to know our Savior and King more intimately, we should be filled with hope. As we discussed last week, the Word of God is of absolutely paramount importance to our Christian walk. We cannot neglect it. Without the Word, we can't learn about God and His faithfulness and His mercy and all of the promises that are certain. I mean, look at verses 8 and 9 in chapter 15 here. Scripture is critical. Paul is talking about it. Scripture shows us about the trustworthiness of God, his his faithfulness, and it shows us about his, his mercy that is new every morning. That's why Paul and all the writers of the New Testament quote the Old Testament so much. I mean, right here in verses 9 through 12, he quotes the Old Testament at least four different passages in there. And this why, this is why every good Bible teacher is going to stick to the Word of God. And that's why you will hear nothing but the Word of God ever preached from this pulpit. Because it's the Word of God that gives us our hope because it tells us about Jesus. It tells us about God. We would have no basis for hoping in our future in Christ without the unshakable, unchanging, inspired, and infallible Word of God. Amen? A couple weeks ago, um, after saving up, I got a new TV. And um, I had this spot on my wall picked out for this new TV, and so I bought um, kind of a wall-hanging mount and I, I, I opened the wall hanging mount up and there were these instructions in there that kind of gave detailed step-by-step, you know, this is how you're supposed to hang the wall on the TV, uh, the TV on the wall. And I, I looked and I saw, you know, 
there's all kinds of screws here and stuff, and I can kind of figure out where it goes, and, you know, we should be able to do this. So what did I do? Well, let's just say hypothetically. Let's just hypothetically, um, you know, I, I put the screws into the television, and I kind of bolted the, the frame into the drywall, and, um, you know, and I, I put the TV onto the wall, my nice, new, beautiful TV, and um, let's just say, I mean, we're using our imagination, right? And, and you can kind of imagine shortly after the TV going on the wall, the sound that it made as it rips out of the wall, <laughs> crashes down to the floor, and shatters into a million pieces. Now, thankfully, I had enough good sense not to do that. It was a hypothetical, remember? Instead, I recognized the importance of reading the instructions and understanding how I was supposed to put this TV on the wall and make sure that it wouldn't come crashing down. <laughs> um, and you know what? I wasn't foolish enough to try to do it by myself either. The first thing that I did was I called my dad up and I was like, Dad, I need you. <laughs> Again. <laughs> and so he came over and together we put the TV up on the wall and we made sure to drill it into the studs because that's where the instructions said we could have certainty that it wouldn't fall. And if you think that you can live a hope-filled life without the Word of God instructing you and telling you where to drill your faith into Jesus Christ, you're sadly mistaken because you're just going to be in the drywall and I can guarantee you that eventually you're going to crash down and shatter. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. The more that you know and love the Word of God, the more you allow its truth to be your highest and ultimate authority, the stronger your confident hope in Christ will become. But I've been, I've been using that word a lot. I've been saying hope a lot. What, what is hope? What, what is this thing that confidence and faith in Scripture gives us? Well, before we go any further, I need to define it. And so, this Greek word, it appears 84 times in the New Testament. And in the overwhelming majority of those times, it's found in the epistles referring back to Jesus. And the word hope, it means an absolute certainty of a future good based on God's faithfulness in the past. There is no doubting in biblical hope. And right here, that's the key difference between the world's idea of hope and the hope that Scripture says that we can have by faith, by trusting in the Word of God. See, notice that the, the word hope here in verse 4 and also in verse 13, which we're going to look at in a little bit, they are nouns, they're not verbs. If you're an English teacher, you'll get the significance of that. But basically, what this means is that biblical hope 
is a concrete thing. It's not an action. We do not hope. We have hope. We do not hope. We have hope. We don't say, I hope I'm saved. I I hope Jesus is coming back. I hope I'm forgiven. I hope I'll spend eternity with him. Or any other I hope statements. We have the certain hope of salvation and of forgiveness and of God's love for us and all the other promises of Scripture. We don't hope that we have those things. We know we have those things. Our hope is certain. See, the world's idea of hope is just, it's just an optimistic desire that something might happen the way I want. The thing hoped in isn't guaranteed at all because of all the changing people and circumstances that could affect it. The Stoic philosopher Seneca, who you see on the screen behind me, he was a contemporary of Paul. He was the leading Greek philosopher of the day, and he wrote that hope is an uncertain good. And in the world in which Paul was writing his letters, most ancient thinkers, including Seneca, they didn't regard hope as a virtue. They saw it as a vice. They saw it as self-delusion. In fact, we can read many historians who talk about the ancient world, and we know that there was a great cloud of hopelessness that covered the ancient world because of the people's lack of a certain future hope. They believed everything was up to the whims and fancies of the gods. They had no certain hope. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's that's anyone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, this, this hopelessness, it was so pervasive in the ancient world that depression and suicide were rampant. They were a tragic fact of life for these hopeless men and women. And sadly, tragically, as our country has walked further and further from the hopeful certainty that comes from the scripture, both the suicide rate, especially among young people, and the instances of non-chemical depression, they've continued to skyrocket. But the uncertain hope that Seneca and the ancients described and the uncertain hope that permeates our society today, that's, that's not biblical hope. Praise God that that's not biblical hope. Yes, we should be optimistic, but our hope in the truth of the scripture isn't just optimism. It is an assured and confident expectation of the certain future event because we know that our God is faithful and always keeps his promises. Amen? Amen. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place. Now, fun fact for you, the early church actually adopted the anchor as a symbol of their hope-filled faith. You can see some etchings, oh, go back one slide, your head. You can see the etchings there that those are in the catacombs in Rome and all over the ancient world. They used the anchor as a way to disguise the cross. And it was a symbol to Christians who knew where to go to find other Christians to worship with in the midst of persecution. And like our brothers and sisters in the early church, we've got to realize that our hope is as certain and secure as an anchor that will prevent us from ever falling away from our Lord. He is more trustworthy than old faithful. (laughs) The guys are in the picture. He always keeps his promises that he has made in Scripture, and we can be sure, certain of that hope. And so because we can trust the truth of Scriptures, we not only have a hope-filled identity in our confidence as children of God, and we not only have a mindset of certainty in the hope that we have from Jesus, but we should live lives that have hope-filled conduct through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now we turn to verse 13, and we read together. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Now, I I love this verse. I mean, I don't know about you, but it just is so encouraging to me that our God is the God of hope. He is the God of hope. He gives us hope. That's what he does. And he gives it through his son, Jesus. And he fills us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He fills us to, to overflowing, that it would abound within us. The Greek word for fill here, it means to fill to overflowing. And it expresses the idea that the thing that is filling you, in this case hope, is is so filling you that it's in control of you and it controls your, your actions and your words and your thoughts. It is just completely filled you to the brim overflowing. It's the same Greek word in Ephesians 5.18 when Paul commands us to be filled with the Spirit. It's the same word there. See, as confidence of our hope-filled identity takes root in us and the certainty of our our hope-filled mindset anchors our thinking, the God of hope is going to fill us to overflowing with joy and peace. So that hope-filled conduct becomes our way of life. Now, I'm not going to talk about specific types of conduct that we, that we should live or, or how our life should look. But instead, what we're going to talk about is what is joy and peace because that 
typifies our conduct. That should, that should be what our conduct looks like. It should be joyful and it should be peaceful. Both of those things are a product of hope. We need to see the progression here. We'll, we'll unpack this. And then we're going to talk about how the enemy tries to steal all of that from us. Okay? So that's our outline for this last section here. So joy, what is joy? Joy is this deep down sense of delight and contentment in the Lord that flows from the knowledge and thankfulness of His saving grace in our lives. Joy is not happiness. It's not, oh, the world is burning around me, I'm so happy. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a contentment and a peace that is going on regardless of the circumstances around us because it's based on God's grace and forgiveness in our lives. In fact, the Greek word for joy is actually derived from the Greek word for grace. Joy comes directly out of grace. The more we see God's grace in our lives, the more content we become. Nehemiah 8.10 says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The more that we believe and trust in Scripture, the more we will be filled with hope, the more we'll see God's grace, and the more joy will abound within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Then on the other hand, we have peace. Peace is derived from a Greek word that means to join together something that was previously separated. And this peace, this, this, this undivided harmony, it comes from knowing that we're no longer separated from God. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are made whole with God. There is no separation, and we know that God has a plan for our lives that ends with us being with Him forever in heaven. In fact, our English word serene, it's derived directly from the Greek word for peace. See, this peace, it's, it's not just the peace we have with God, as in we're no longer at war with Him. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's the peace of of God that we receive. It's, it's his tranquility, his, his shalom in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's this wholeness that we receive through the Holy Spirit. And the more that we're yielded and relying on the Spirit, the more confident we are in our right standing before God the more peace that we'll have regardless of the circumstances around us. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. But, but we need to look back at verse 13. Notice where joy and peace comes from. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Well, believe what, you might ask? Well, I already gave you the answer to that. Paul is tying verse 13 back to verse 4 here. 
Because joy and peace comes from believing in Scripture. Why? Because believing in Scripture and having faith in Scripture gives us hope. And hope produces joy and peace. Do we see this, how this is working together here? John Piper, he said, this confident hope that comes through believing gives us the encouragement and enablement we need for daily living. It does not put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus Christ. Instead, it puts us in the marketplace, on the battlefield, where we keep on going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. Hope is not a sedative, it's a shot of adrenaline, a spiritual blood transfusion. I love that. This is what hope should do within us. We, we should be energized by hope. Again, it doesn't mean that I'm just going around happy, yay, everything's great. No, we are going to be in the midst of fire and trial, and it's going to be hard sometimes. In fact, it's going to be brutally hard sometimes, and we're going to be hurting, and we are going to be kicked in places we don't want to be kicked. But we have hope. And therefore, we can overcome by the power of the Spirit as He abounds joy and peace within us. But look, I'm a, I get it. I'm a realist. By God's grace, I've been pastoring here for four years now. And I recognize that many of us, many of us struggle with feelings of hopelessness and uncertainty or, or more common, the periods of boredom and dryness with our faith, we, we go through those valleys, don't we? I mean, it happens. And in those moments, if I were to ask you, well, how are you doing with your walk with God? How are you doing with reading the Word and in prayer? More often than not, in fact, almost always, that person's going to tell me, well, I'm not, not really, you know, reading the Bible right now and I'm not really praying at all. Um, and it would be very easy. In fact, I've told people this. I'm going to admit to this. If I told you this, I apologize for my poor counsel. I've told people, well, you know what? You just got to read the Bible more and pray more. Well, guess what? That's an incomplete answer. And, and honestly, it's not very helpful. It really isn't. What we need to do is we need to actually believe what we read in the Bible, and we need to believe that our prayers are being heard by God and that He is active in our lives. We can read and pray all we want, but if we don't have the faith, if we don't believe in what we read and trust that God hears our prayers and is moving, then we're gonna continue in our hopelessness and our spiritual dryness. That's just what's gonna happen. And so what we need to do in those moments, we need to cry out to God. And we need to say to him like the Father does in Mark chapter nine, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, give me faith in this moment to know and trust and have certainty in what your word says. 
that I will be able to have endurance and I will be able to persevere and your spirit will produce this joy and peace within me that I know I can have. Lord, help me to believe. That's what our prayers need to be. And God will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. But look, believing isn't just about what we know and assent to intellectually. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about, Lord, I just wanna, I wanna trust, I wanna accept this as true. It's not about accepting it as true. I mean, I guess sometimes it is. <laughs> but usually it's about letting that truth sink down to your heart that you actually submit to the truth. So I'm not talking about knowing truth intellectually and believing it, but actually submitting to that truth and saying, this truth is what I am going to live my life based on. This truth is what my mind is going to be fixed on, and this truth is what is going to drive me forward as I pursue God through this crap that I'm going through. That's what our prayers need to be, and that's how we approach God. where we ask him to teach us and to submit to the fact that when we have Jesus, we don't need anything else. When we have Jesus, when we, we, we receive the Holy Spirit and we are sealed and we have the power of God living within us, that we are able to overcome whatever we may face. When we have Jesus, we can be sure of our future in Christ, that one day we will be with him for all of eternity in heaven, reigning with him on the throne, worshiping our God. Holy, holy, holy is he, and faithful is he, and we can be certain of that. But listen, we've got to be aware of the fact that the enemy knows this too. The enemy knows this. And the enemy doesn't want us to know this. The enemy wants to keep us away from this. And so what does the enemy do? The enemy who is the father of lies, John 8, 44, who kills, steals, and destroys, John 10, 10, he's constantly seeking to deceive us into unbelief. That's what he's doing. And he's trying to extinguish our hope. That's what he's doing. And once he's done that, once he's got us to move to unbelief and he is, he is taking away our hope, he will then move to steal our peace, kill our joy, and destroy our testimony. That's the strategy of the devil. And I want to make sure we're getting this because this is really important, guys. The aim of the enemy is to deceive us into unbelief and hopelessness so that he can steal our peace, kill our joy, and destroy our testimony. You might, you might have thought that the enemy is, what he wants to do is kill you. I would submit to you that you shouldn't think so highly of yourself. None of us are that important that the enemy, that Satan's actually trying to kill us. Now, I I believe that what the enemy really wants to do is he wants to make us miserable. He wants to make us Christians who are hopeless. 
He wants this world to be filled with Christians who have no joy, who have no peace, and who have no testimony of God's power and truth at work in their lives. Because a hopeless Christian is an ineffective Christian. In fact, I would go so far to say that a hopeless Christian is a hindrance to what God is doing because then the world looks at us and they say, why would I want to follow Jesus and be like that? I mean, think about it. How, how effective have you been in those times when your peace was stolen from you? Those times when you were so overcome with anxiety and fear that you were paralyzed with inaction or stress. I mean, the enemy delights in stealing our peace so that we won't proclaim the faithfulness of God. And how effective have you been in those times when your joy was killed? When you were racked with discontentment when you were racked with misery over the circumstances going on around you, maybe happening directly to you, the enemy delights in killing our joy so that we won't proclaim the mercy and goodness of God. And how effective have you been in those times when your testimony was destroyed because of some sin that the enemy successfully tempted you to fall into? The enemy delights in destroying our testimony so that we'll be too ashamed to even speak about God. We've got to see how the enemy comes against us and we have got to hold up that shield of faith, that shield of believing, that shield that leads to hoping, to quench the fiery arrows that come against us, the lies that are calculated to lead to despair and hopelessness and try to burn us down with the world around us and make us ineffective messengers of light and we have to hold that shield up and we have to hope in our Lord. And if we've been hit by one of those arrows, if the fire has caught on, then we need to cry out like the psalmist does in Psalm 42 and say, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Command your soul to wake up and hope to focus back on Jesus and the hope that we have in him as we call out to God to help us to have faith and to believe. Hope-filled conduct means the joy of the Lord is our strength and the peace of Christ soothes our thoughts so that we can persevere through the fires we'll face and praise our God no matter the circumstances. And you know what? After the great Chicago fire burned down most of the city and the feeling of hopelessness began to creep in on so many of the survivors, there was at least one man who wasn't going to lose hope. The day after the fire was extinguished, a man whose shop was burned down arrived at the ashes of his business. He looked around and he went home And he brought a table back to his business. 
He set the table up, and on top of the table, he wrote, everything lost except wife, children, and hope. Business will be resumed as usual tomorrow morning. Look, as, as we go through this world as aliens and strangers, we are going to face fires throughout our lives. And things are going to burn around us. We can be sure that the enemy is going to try to incinerate our hope, but we have to hold fast to the truth of Scripture, the certainty that we can have from Scripture, and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to keep our hope alive so that we will stay open for whatever business our Savior and King calls us to carry on. We are called to be messengers of hope to this hopeless world as we walk in the confidence of our hope-filled identity, the certainty of our hope-filled mindset, and the peace and joy of our hope-filled conduct, all to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the hope that we have in you. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would continue to trust in your word, that we would pursue you with all of our hearts, that we would remember what you have done on the cross for us, and that would spur us on to joy and peace and perseverance as we endure the trials and the fires of this world. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, Help us, Lord, to abound in hope by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.